Kevin Falcon, 52.19%. Ladies and gentlemen, congratulations to the new leader of the BC Liberal Party, Kevin Falcon. Thank you. What a night. Woo. Thank you. But none of you have ever forgotten the importance of our party and our purpose. The BC needs and deserves a government that believes that a private sector-driven economy is the best way to generate revenues so we can fund first-class public services. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and that was the sound on Saturday night at the BC Liberal Leadership Contest. Former Liberal Finance Minister Kevin Falcon is the winner. He is the new leader of the BC Liberal Party. Where does he want to take this party? Where does he want to take British Columbia if he wins the next election? Let's ask him right now. Kevin Falcon is my first guest this morning. Thanks a lot for coming on this morning. Thanks for having me on again, Mike. I appreciate it a lot. Congratulations on the win. What was going through your mind there on Saturday night? Well, you know, to be honest, uh, when that first ballot result uh, came in at 47%, uh, you know, I knew right then that we had won. Uh, Almost half the members voting for me on first ballot meant that uh, we were going to we were going to do very well. And in fact, in the aftermath of things, uh, I'm told that 75% of the votes were for me, either first, second or third ballot. So that is a, that's the kind of mandate I'm very, very proud of. It's one of the strongest in the history of our party. And I think that really helps me going forward because I had a very clear vision of where I wanted to take the party. And it was in a new direction and it wasn't universally acclaimed, but I think it's the right thing to do. Okay, well, let's talk about that, where you want to take the Liberal Party here right now. One of the things you talked about during this contest was the potential to rename the Liberal Party as part of a, a renewal process. Is that still on your agenda? Uh, very much so. I said to, uh, I, I always said, subject to two things. One, that we can come up with a name that, that you know, most of the members can agree with, makes sense. And the second thing that we can, you know, make sure that nobody can mischievously try and use the old BC level name to run candidates against us and confuse the public. So subject to me getting clarification over those two issues, that's something we need to consider. But look, the, the, uh, frankly, government and, and, and our party, I should say, needs far more than, than just that. What we need to do is make sure that we change in the direction that I wanted to see us change as I sat in the last better part of a decade in the private sector watching my former party uh, miss opportunities to deal with issues like affordable childcare, housing affordability, etc. And I want to make sure that uh, we put those issues at the front of the window too. How do you repair the divisions in this party now after a, a fairly nasty leadership race? And one of your opponents even vowed to quit the party if you won. Val Litwin, uh, the former president of the BC Chamber of Commerce, I, he was on the show here last week, and he said, "If if you win, he's he's out of there." Let me play this clip here for you. What he had to say, and then I'll ask you your thoughts on it. Val Litwin here. I'm just saying I don't see a role for myself in renewal under a Kevin Falcon BC led a BC Liberal led government. If any other candidate wins, I'm in. I'm in. I am committed. But I I appreciate and understand that what will get us over the line in 2024 is not going to be the old backroom deals, the old playbook, and the old way of doing politics. Okay, what do you say to that? Look, I... I'm, I think in victory, you can afford to be a little generous and magnanimous. We, we were in a leadership race and people are trying to do their best to, uh, you know, stand out, et cetera. But I, I think I'll let the results speak for themselves. Uh, the members of this party uh, had a very different view. And I think that they accepted the fact that I want to move forward and make sure that we are going to be a party that's going to be more diverse, that we're going to have more women uh, involved, both as members and candidates, that we're going to go for youth, experience, competence, all of those things. Uh, that people want to see. And that requires leadership and it requires experience. And I think that the public, uh, you know, or at least the members of uh, the BC Liberal Party decided I was the person that probably best encompassed all of those things. But I also want to say we had some really great candidates. And I think it's important to look at uh, their their finish that Ellis Ross did. Uh, I think that that was also uh, pretty spectacular. Um, And uh, I'm excited about that. Yeah. Okay. Let me ask you about the renewal of the party and the new direction you want to go in. How is that possible when the guy at the top is a guy who'd been around for so long as a, as a former 
very high profile cabinet minister in a, in a previous liberal government. And this is something that your NDP opponents will constantly remind the, the public about. They're already out calling it yesterday's man, backroom deals, the status quo, Gordon Campbell's right hand man from the bad old days of the liberal government. How do you get over that? Hump? <laughs> Well, Mike, you've been around long enough to know that uh, that entire front bench of the NDP have been doing nothing but being in politics their entire lives. They, they, you know, I mean, Horgan, Farnworth, Fleming, all those guys, none of them have any private sector experience, or at least uh, not enough you can fit on a single sheet of paper. Look, I think it's important to have, uh, uh, I'm proud of my record when I was in government. There's a reason while I was there that we won three majority governments. It's because we put forward... Uh, the kind of things like the North America's first revenue neutral carbon tax, which I remind the voters or the listeners out there that the NDP fought stridently against. And it's that kind of leadership that I do think the public wants to see. And I'm proud of that. And yes, of course, they're going to say all that. I've spent the better part of the last decade in the private sector. I yeah. think a little private sector experience would be good for some of them too, frankly, so they can see what it's like in the real world. Because I can tell you, um, it, we need to have a combination of leadership in both the private and public sector. I think that's a, a good time for that right now in British Columbia. Speaking to the new leader of the BC Liberal Party, Kevin Falcon, talking about your 10 years in the private sector as a, a real estate developer. I mean, the, the NDP are going to point the finger at that, too, and say, look, yeah, OK, this guy was in the real uh, the real estate business in the private sector during a time when we've got unaffordable an unaffordable housing crisis here. How do you overcome that accusation? Well, first of all, that's part of what I was doing. I was overseeing our investments, not just in real estate, but also in the natural resource sector and the, uh, the, the beer business, etc. So there's a whole bunch of things. But look, I'm happy to have them say that because quite frankly, I think it would be refreshing to have a premier of the province that actually understands the housing sector because these people mm-hmm. clearly do not. And look, I want to be clear. I don't think the NDP are bad people. I've said this before. Uh, because they're not. And I don't think that they don't mean well because I think they do. It's just they don't know how to get big things done. Housing affordability is a classic. Uh, When I left in 2012, you know, housing prices were starting to rise, but they have exploded under the NDP in spite of the fact that in 2018 they introduced a whole blizzard of new taxes on housing. And here we are almost four years later, and we've seen the highest run-up in housing prices we've ever seen. They do not know what they're doing. I think it would be important to have a leader and a premier that does understand uh, how to get uh, the housing affordability issue fixed or at least tackled. Okay, let me, uh, speaking of taxes, let me ask you about another uh, controversial tax in British Columbia, the carbon tax. You were part of a former Liberal government that brought that in, but you were also on the record at one point saying that the tax should be frozen. What's your position on that tax now? Keep that carbon tax in place? Keep jacking it up every year? No, but here, here's what's really important. When we brought it in, it was a revenue-neutral carbon tax, meaning by law, every dollar had to be returned in the form of lower personal taxes, lower small business taxes, as the case may be. And what the NDP did when they first got in, as you know, is they changed the law and turned it from a tax shift, which is what it was under revenue-neutral, into a tax grab, so that they now pull that money into government, and they love raising the carbon tax because then they can use the money to fund Uh, all kinds of silly expenditures that they're making, frankly. So, look, I think it's important we go back to the original agreement we had with the public, and that is it's a tax shift, not a tax grab. Okay, so you would make it back into a revenue-neutral tax that would continue to increase every year, though, even though revenue-neutral, though. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Let me let me ask you about another one that we talked about in an earlier show, and that was the the Massey Tunnel. You're a former transportation minister in British Columbia. You've got an NDP government here that put the brakes on that Massey uh, that bridge to replace the Massey Tunnel that the Liberals started building. Uh, they had recently announced a a new tunnel, four billion dollars to replace the existing tunnel. You suggested to me on an earlier show that there might be an opportunity to cancel that down the road if if the Liberals took power again. Is that still your position? Uh, 100%, because I know this. They are not even going to get that thing started. Because what the NDP government doesn't understand, and the Minister of Transportation clearly doesn't understand, is first of all, they walked away from one of the best deals I have ever seen for the taxpayers of British Columbia. They had an agreement in place. They went through an entire procurement process with a winning bidder that was $900 million under the $3.5 billion budget that was put aside 
for that 10-lane bridge. And just to be clear for the public, that would have meant two dedicated lanes for buses and four lanes in each direction for commuter traffic, and it was designed for SkyTrain so that in the future you could run it from Bridgeport Station to South Surrey. And they walked away from all that. They want to do this crazy idea with the tunnel. They're going to be stuck in the environmental assessment process for the next five years. Nothing will have gotten done. That's why I'm going to go back to the bridge idea. We can dust off the old plans, update them, and get that thing built. Let me ask you one more question here about the the times that we're in right now. And you referenced this in your speech on Saturday night, that here we're going into year three of this pandemic. We see these trucker convoys that are occupying the streets of Ottawa. We've got truckers trying to block a a border crossing in Alberta. I mean, these are, are difficult times in our history. And you're coming back into politics at that time. What can you say about sort of repairing trust in our institutions and, and in politics uh, at a time like this? And what do, you th- what do you think of those trucker convoys? Okay, so I, I think it's symbolic of something that concerns me, uh, just more broadly speaking. It's one of the reasons I'm frankly coming back into public life, because I've got two young girls. Uh, one's 12, the other's turning nine. I think about that generation and I worry. I worry a lot about what I'm seeing in politics across North America and, frankly, at almost every level uh, here in, in this country. Just the lack of politicians that are getting anything done. And I really believe, as I really believe strongly, that it's so important that if we're going to build and retain trust by the public, they have to see that we can still get big things done. And what concerns me, uh, Mike, is I've crisscrossed this province Uh, Over the last, we've had almost five years of NDP government. I can't see anything that has been done or built almost anywhere in this province. And that is a worry for me. Even when they talk about stuff like $10 a day daycare, which I support, but not the way they want to deliver it because it'll take them 10 years to ever get it done. It's year five now in their promise. There's only a couple of test cases that they've got going on the island. This is something that, you know, when we promised uh, all day kindergarten, we had that up and running within a year. I cannot understand, I do understand actually, why they can't get these kind of big things done because their backgrounds don't inform them on how to manage large, complex organizations, which government is. And I think at the end of the day, you build trust by showing the public that we can still get big, important okay. things done in this province. Congratulations on the win. Thanks for coming on today. Appreciate it. Thank, thanks so much for having me, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about COVID now and the debate on a knife edge right now in our country as the battle rages over vaccine mandates, COVID restrictions. In Ottawa, the mayor has declared a state of emergency as truck the trucker occupation of downtown Ottawa continues. Police continue to monitor illegal blockades near the Alberta-U.S. border. We continue to see anti-mandate protests across the country. Where is this all heading now? Some countries around the world and now some provinces here at home saying it's time to drop the mandates, drop the restrictions, and just learn to live with COVID. Have a listen to this. Saskatchewan Mayor Scott, Saskatchewan Premier, that is, Scott Moe. What I'm about to say will sound radical to some, and some, quite frankly, aren't going to like it. But eradicating COVID is not realistic, and COVID zero is not achievable. But normalizing COVID, or living with COVID, most certainly is. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Dr. Kevin McLeod, internal medicine specialist at Lionsgate Hospitals. He is at Lionsgate Hospital. He's done a lot of shifts in the COVID ward there. Kevin, it's nice to have you on again. Thanks for coming on. Mike, anytime. Okay, when you hear a politician like Scott Moe, the Premier of Saskatchewan, saying, we can learn to live with this now. It's time to drop the restrictions. We can manage this thing essentially like the flu. What goes through your mind as a doctor on the front lines of this fight when you hear a politician say that? Um, I think there's a few things. I mean, I, I think we have to learn to live with it. It's not really going to be a choice. You know, Scott Moe's right. This isn't going away. We're not going to get to some magical point where COVID's gone. Um, so we, we do have to learn to live with it. When you look at other countries, um, Denmark's a good example. You know, they're they're dropping restrictions, but they also have just better capacity in their, their healthcare system than we might have. So we're, we're sort of always living on the edge here with, with capacity. So we need to make sure that we've got the capacity to live with it more effectively. I mean, it's, it's no good saying, well, we're going to live with it, but we're not going to do urgent surgeries because we don't have any capacity. And to live with COVID means people can't get their hips and knees replaced. I mean, that, that's not 
reasonable. So, so what does living with it look like and how do we expand that capacity? And, and, you know, people won't like me saying this either, but we, we probably are at a point where the mandates are not as helpful as I think many people think. I think, and I was a big supporter of mandates earlier on. I think it made sense with, with previous versions of COVID, but as we've gotten into Omicron and so many people have had this, it, it, it sort of becomes less useful as a tool. And if you're going to take away people's rights or push them into something, you know, you just you have to be able to back that up with good data. And, and we had that before with previous versions. I don't think we have it now. Because if you, if you think about it, you know, at least 3 million Canadians have had a confirmed COVID positive test. It's probably yeah. five to 10 times that amount. We're talking 15 plus million Canadians out of 38 million of us. We're, we're kind of almost at the 50% of us have had this mark, right? Do you think there's a lot of people may have had COVID and not even known it? Well, absolutely. I mean, there's some data that, that says upwards of 80% of people who get it don't have symptoms. Now, that's not to minimize it, because when people say it's like the flu, it's not. It, right, it is right. still more deadly than the flu, and, and there is a subset of people who this is really brutal for, right? Like they have immunocompromised, they have some lung condition, they, they have something where if they get COVID, it's really going to impact them. Or, you know, I've, I've seen people where it's just, for whatever reason, bad luck with their immune system. They have a more profound reaction, they land in the ICU, but they, they're healthy people. They, you know, you would never expect them to, to be hit so hard by this. So it, it's still more significant than the flu, but it doesn't mean we we can keep doing what we're doing now. Speaking to Dr. Kevin McLeod from Lionsgate Hospital, you know, a lot of people, when they heard Scott Moe talking that way, it's time to live with this thing. Let's drop the man. Let's drop the restrictions. That's what we're going to do. A lot of people welcome that because I think, you know, even even people who may be on opposite sides of the debate over like trucker protests and stuff. Most people are just sick and tired of this damn thing, right? They just they just want it over with. We want to go back to some form of normality. Others, though, when we're listening to Scott Moe there, other people, though, were getting deja vu to last summer when you had Jason Kenney say, we're dropping the restrictions, we're going to have the most awesome summer ever at the Calgary Stampede, and the ICU units full got full. So, I mean, is it... Is it too early now to be talking about dropping restrictions? I, I don't think it's too early now. I mean, we are on on a downward swing for sure, you know, and, and there will be other spikes, you know, who, who knows, but there may be another spike in the fall. But again, that's where then we've got to figure out a capacity problem, right? Like, and, yeah. and you, have, you and I have talked about this before, but, you know, people have this idea that the hospitals are completely overloaded and there's, you know, 90% of people in there have COVID. That's not actually the case, right? There's probably 5 to 6% of people in hospitals that are there because of a COVID infection. There's another probably 6 or so percent that are there incidentally with COVID. And then there's all the other things that we deal with all the time. And, and, you know, I've tried to make this point, but it's estimated about 14% of people in our acute care hospitals don't need to be there. They need to be in long-term care, but there's no long-term care space available for them. So it sort of puts it in perspective. Like, we have things that we could do to improve this capacity and to, to put restrictions and impact people's businesses and lives and other things when there's there's ways we could improve capacity it's saying it's all COVID's a cop-out really i mean it's you know i, I get it government's doing their best but it, it man oh man like there's better things we could do well if we made a priority to let's say expand hospital and healthcare capacity to deal with this i think that makes a lot of sense would you also say that we're at a point now in this pandemic as we go into year three of it that we know a lot more about this virus and the way it behaves. Uh, we've learned how to mitigate it. We know about the masking. We have effective and safe vaccines. We now have therapeutics. So if people do get COVID, you can take a, a prescription pill that could keep you out of the hospital. Are, are all of those elements that can be used and utilized in order to just, just live with this thing and manage it? Absolutely, Mike. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, when in the early days of, of the pandemic, when we knew very little, you know, I remember coming home and my wife said, 
get your clothes off in the garage. You're not coming in the house. Like I was wiping down with disinfectants. I mean, we, you know, we didn't know, right? You know, it's, it's, it's much more relaxed now. We understand it better. In the early days when there was an outbreak in a care home or you know, we, we had outbreaks at our hospital, just like many other hospitals, it was absolutely brutal. It, it took so many people down and, and caused huge numbers of deaths. You know, when, when there's outbreaks now and you hear all these outbreaks reported, yeah, there are some deaths and people who, who are highly susceptible and may have some underlying issues. But but it's not the same. Like when we've had outbreaks in the hospital, you know, in the last few months, people do okay. In fact, many of the patients, because they're triply vaccinated, don't even know that they have COVID. We wouldn't know yeah. except that we test them. So it's it's a completely different stage of this. And, and I think that's where then we've got to move on because the piece that I really worry about, you know, just from the healthcare point of view, there's all this other stuff that is getting missed because we're so focused on COVID, right? Cancer screenings, people can't find family docs, you know, the care has been delayed in so many other ways, people waiting for surgeries, the impact that that has, you know, that, that we've got to sort of put way more attention to and, and live with the COVID piece because, you know, the, the ongoing, hey, we got to restrict everything or the people who say, no, 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 we've got to restrict everything even more. It, it actually causes a huge amount of harm, right? I mean, you remember when schools went back, people were up in arms saying, you know, this is this is going to be a disaster. And it, it really hasn't been. The government made the right decision on that. They looked at yeah. the evidence. They really tried to be safe. And, you know, there's no perfect answer ever, right? But, you know, I think they made the right decision on that. we got to okay. try to get back to some semblance of normal. Here we are having a, a rational and reasonable conversation about trying to get to the other side of this thing, yet we see across the country there are protests and disputes going on that are very angry, in some cases violent. You know, we've got this trucker occupation in downtown Ottawa that is dragging on. We've had reports of healthcare workers being harassed. I mean, you've seen that up close at Lionsgate Hospital. I, I mean, what what can you say, just lastly, about the state of the debate as it exists in our country right now with, with the trucker, the trucker convoys, the trucker protests and some of the harass, the angry uh, di- displays we're seeing, some of it directed right at, at your colleagues in the front line of healthcare. I mean, I think we've got two choices, right? We either go down the path that we're seeing happen in the United States where people get more and more entrenched in extreme positions or we do something different and we come together. And, and that's going to mean people in the, you know, the quote unquote trucker protests standing up and saying that, you know, we have some good points about the mandates and we want those dropped. And there's a bunch of idiots in our ranks holding swastika and other signs. And we completely denounce them. We don't want them part of this. That's not the message. But then politicians have to come forward too and not use this as a wedge issue and say, you know what? Mandates made sense. You guys may not agree with that. They probably don't now. Let's like figure out how we end that and, and kind of come together. It doesn't have to be people moving further and further away from some position that's in the middle, right? Like people yeah. get so entrenched in their position and, and that's really dangerous. And, and, um, but I think politicians are worried. They don't know what to say and do either, right? Because the public is getting so entrenched in their position. So we've all got to, we've all got to take a deep breath and kind of move a little bit and, you know, realize that, that, you know, we're not actually a gazillion miles apart here. It's always great to have you on and, t- and get your perspective. Thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. Mike, anytime. Thank okay. you. Okay. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the trucker occupation of downtown Ottawa now as the protests continuing in Ottawa with the trucker convoy. This has been a tough challenge for Ottawa police, to say the least. The Ottawa police chief at one point saying he doesn't believe that there is a police solution to this. Police, though, now have stepped up enforcement in Ottawa. We're seeing more arrests. We're seeing more action on the streets of Ottawa to deal with this. There are increasing calls for a tougher response to what's going on in Canada's capital. Have a listen to this here now. This is Federal Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino, and he was asked whether the military would be deployed in Ottawa to deal with this. Have a listen to what he said here. We want to rely on the law enforcement to deal with a public uh, order event. Uh, This is not a military uh, operation. The military and its purpose are not designed to keep the peace uh, locally in our communities. Uh, So uh, it's obviously a 
last resort. In the meantime, uh, it's important that auto police uh, do their jobs on the ground. Okay, that's the federal public safety minister there saying it's up to the police in Ottawa to do their job. You heard him describe a military option there as last resort. Let's discuss now with my guest, Phil Gursky. Phil is a former CSIS analyst. He is the president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Phil, thanks a lot for coming on today. It's my pleasure, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for doing this. When you take a look at what's going on in in the streets of Ottawa right now and the police response to it so far, what are your thoughts on that and how the police have handled this thing? It's it's a great question, Mike, and you're well aware there's been a lot of criticism, both at the level of the city and just general public, I suppose, in terms of what Ottawa police have done and haven't done since day one. I'm a big believer, Mike, in letting the police do the jobs for which they're hired. They're the ones who know how to do this. They're the ones trained in managing situations like this. I get a little bit ticked when I hear some of the sort of Monday morning quarterbacking about, well, what have they done this? And why didn't they do that? It's a fluid situation. Were mistakes made? Yeah, mistakes are made all the time. But I think they're doing the best job they can under the situation. They probably don't have enough men and women to do the job. And, you know, but so far, so good. I mean, it's been inconvenient. Absolutely. Um, But we haven't seen levels of violence, which is good. Not to say that there won't be levels of violence, but we haven't so far. And I, I just think they're they're working under extreme circumstances, and it, it, we've got to give them the time to be able to do what they have to do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're a guy who's very familiar with with Ottawa as an Ottawa res- resident, and you mentioned that you know mistakes. Some mistakes have been made. What what do you think the mistakes were that were made? Do you think they should have anticipated something like this and been more prepared? Well, hindsight's twenty twenty, Mike. And I, you know, I've been hearing a lot of people use the term intelligence failure, whatever that's supposed to mean. No one who worked in intelligence is using the term intelligence failure. I'm not sure what information would have been uh, at the available to the Ottawa police, whether they were in contact with CSIS, if there were concerns or the RCMP, et cetera. It's hard to judge that without having sort of a better understanding of what they knew when they knew it. They certainly underestimated it. I mean, what I'm seeing in reports is that they felt these guys would show up, they'd do their protests, and they'd get out of Dodge within a couple of days. That clearly hasn't happened. Should they have predicted that? Well, shoulda, woulda, coulda. You know, if they all had crystal balls, they, they would realize this wasn't going to happen. So again, I'd, I'd rather keep my powder dry at this point in terms of what went wrong and what wasn't done, and um, just you know, give them the the, the the space they need to try to bring a peaceful resolution to this. Okay, let's talk a little bit about some of the pressure here on the Justin Trudeau government for some sort of a political intervention into this. You just heard from the public safety minister there saying that this is a job for the police on the ground in Ottawa, but we're seeing increasing pressure here now on the prime minister to get involved, perhaps do something. So Jugmeet Singh, the federal NDP leader this morning, commenting on this, he wants to see a tougher response. Let me play a clip here from the NDP leader, Phil, and get your thoughts. Jugmeet Singh speaking this morning. It is clear that this is, this is not a, a protest. This is a, uh, an act to try to overthrow the government and it is getting funded by foreign interference and we need to investigate and stop that stop the flow of that foreign interference particularly coming from the states okay as jugmeet singh the ndp leader speaking this morning i'm speaking to phil gursky he's a former CSIS analyst he's a security expert what do you think of what he had to say there i mean what's your analysis of what this protest is about and, and who these people are do you agree with jugmeet okay. singh there uh, no, uh, hang on a second. A, an attempt to violently, violently overthrow the Canadian government? Where's he getting that from? I've seen the same reports probably you've seen, Mike, as the possibility of some financing coming from across Canada, perhaps from the states. But for the for the you know for Jagmeet Singh as the leader of a, a national political party to call this not a protest but an attempt to violently overthrow the Canadian government, he better have access to intelligence that you and I don't. And as leader of the NDP, I know he doesn't get a lot of intelligence briefings. That, to me, is, is, is putting fuel to the fire. And I think that, yes, the prime minister has to agree to at least meet with some of the self-styled leaders of this, of this protest, have a conversation with them. Will it resolve the issue? I don't know. But he's been incredibly absent from this since day one. But no, Jagmeet Singh's comments are way off base as far as I'm concerned because well, I've seen well, nothing I get- to suggest that. Well, I guess what he's referring to there is one of the central organizing groups here behind the convoy is this group called Canada Unity, which had put out 
and you can still read this online on their website, they'd put out a memorandum of understanding that is a, a lengthy document written in kind of pseudo-legal language that talks about a committee to replace the government, and they wanted the governor general to intervene and replace the government with a, with an operating committee to end these mandates. Like I guess that's what he's referring to when he's talking about overthrowing the government. Okay, right? that's one thing, Mike, and maybe yeah. it's a manifesto, maybe it's a statement of what they would like yeah. to see happen, but there's a big gulf between someone putting out a manifesto as to what they'd like to see happen with the government and Jagmeet Singh calling this an attempt to violently overthrow our, our elected government in Canada. Yeah. Those yeah. two aren't the same thing. You, th you think Trudeau should get involved directly then? Well, I do. Right. He's, he's the national leader. And I know that there's the, you know, the F Trudeau signs that have been in, in, in quite an abundance during this protest. But he's our prime minister. And I think that, he, you know, he has to essentially agree to at least have a conversation with these people. Again, I don't know that's going to resolve things, but it's definitely a lack of leadership from the prime minister. Yeah, I mean, there, there are more there, there's certainly more pressure on Trudeau to do something else. Let me ask you about another uh, situation in the country. And we continue to see protests and blockades near the U.S. border in, in Alberta. That situation is going on. Now, there is traffic getting through and people are able to cross the border at that very busy border crossing in, in Coots, Alberta. But traffic has been slowed by some of these blockades. Let me play this uh, report here for you from Global News. Phil, get your thoughts. So at the end of this, you're going to hear from Jason Kenney right at the end of this report, the Alberta Premier, with his thoughts okay, on the protests going on in Alberta and whether he should negotiate with the blockaders there. Have a listen. They'll get your thoughts. The road to Alberta's busiest border crossing remains open, but the protesters have not gone away. For several days, RCMP have remained at the site of two illegal protests. Traffic is getting through, but the crowd continues to cause significant delays. Protesters vowing to stay put until not just the federal vaccine mandate for cross-border truckers is lifted, but until every last COVID-19 restriction goes away. No responsible government makes policy by negotiating with people engaged in such unlawful conduct, period, full stop. Okay, so you heard the Alberta Premier there at the end, Jason Kenney, who, who has been, you know, talked a lot about ending mandates and would appear to agree, at least agree with at least the spirit of the trucker protest, but think, look, I'm not going to negotiate people with people who are breaking the law. Your thoughts? 100% agree with him. He can't give in to demands that are undemocratic. I mean, who are the truckers that decide what 37 million Canadians are subjected to? Again, what I'm talking about, whether it's Kenny or Trudeau, to sit down and talk, I'm not asking them to give away the store. I'm not asking them to kowtow yeah. to their demands or to change things. But let's at least get a conversation going, identify elements with whom there can be some kind of a negotiation or some kind of talk. And, and try to get this thing moving because, you know, it's paralyzing Ottawa. It's paralyzing Coots. There's been other protests around the country. This is a very tense situation. And if we want it to end as, as peacefully as possible, we got to, you know, do, as Churchill once said, Mike, more jaw jaw and less war war at this point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everybody wants to have this thing over with. I mean, everyone wants to get to the same place that we get back to some sort of form of normalcy. And, and we do see countries around the world that are moving toward relaxing restrictions and mandates. We saw the premier of Saskatchewan this week, or last week, Scott Moe, saying Saskatchewan is going to move to end mandates. We'd learn to live with the virus instead. Do you think that, like, at this stage, we, we require more rational, reasonable conversation on all sides toward trying to get to the place where everybody wants to go to? I think so. I think we have to be led by science. We have to be led by our health experts in terms of what is doable, what is feasible, and what is wise at this point. You're absolutely right, Mike. A lot of countries are starting to scale back. Sweden and Denmark have opened up completely their societies in the past couple of days. I don't know that that's the right solution. I'm not a scientist, Mike. I'm not a COVID expert. And and the other danger, of course, is that if, if some kind of movement is made by the government, whether it's provincial or, or federal, that might be interpreted by some as, well, the truckers have won, the extremists have won. I don't. I hope we don't get there. But yes, I mean, all of us are sick and tired of COVID after you know more than two years, and we have to start looking at our options on a constant basis. Are we at the point where this has gone from pandemic to endemic, and we can sort of go back to, as you say, a, a state of normalcy? I don't know that, but I think we have to have that conversation on a regular just, basis. Just going back to the situation on the ground in Ottawa, where the mayor has declared declared a state of emergency in the city. 
the people who live in that neighborhood there in the blast zone or the red zone, as it's called, where the trucks the trucks are continued to occupying that area. I mean, for them, I got I just feel for the people who are stuck in the middle of that thing. You know, they're, they're, I think they're being like tortured at this point by what's going on, and everybody wants an end to it. You know, as a guy, as a security expert, especially in the when it comes to Ottawa and the parliamentary precincts, I mean, do you think they did a a good job? I mean, we've seen security threats around Parliament Hill in the past. Do you think that needs to be improved? Well, there'll definitely be a, a day after reckoning of what was done, what was not done, and how it was done. You do that after every major event. I, I, as I said initially, Mike, I think they were probably taken by surprise by the enormity of this particular protest, the fact that it's gone on for 10 days and shows little signs of actually dissipating, although they did, it was it was decreasing as the week went on and seems to have risen again. Same with, with Coots, right? The road was open, then it was closed again to a certain extent. It's a moving target, and... I, again, I, I don't want to speak on behalf of Ottawa Police and, and the Allied. They brought in police for, uh, forces from across the province, is my understanding. They're the ones to whom we turn in these situations, and I, I would like to let, allow them to do their jobs. But there's always things that you could have done better, w- w- irrespective of whether what kind of operation is police intelligence you, or whatever. Can you see any scenario where the Canadian military should be deployed on the streets of a city like Ottawa? Not at this point, unless there is a very serious threat of violence. If there, if this gets completely out of control and people are starting to do do serious damage to infrastructure, buildings, for example, or threatening people, maybe then. But that's essentially the declaration of martial law, isn't it? And I think you 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 cross that path at the absolute nth degree when everything else has been tried. So. I, I can't see the, the Trudeau government agreeing to do this. The last time it was, you know, it was done. Believe me, I, correct me wrong. Is was the October crisis, Mike, yeah. back in, in uh, 1970 with the FLQ, and, and look at the criticisms that were leveraged against the government back then for doing that. So it's a very dire decision to make, a very drastic one, and it has to be the last thing you're you're going to be doing. Phil, thank you for coming on today with your thoughts. My pleasure, Mike. Have a good one. All right. Welcome back. Let's talk about organized crime in Canada now and links to the international criminal underworld. Police here in Metro Vancouver now on full alert after a notorious Vancouver gangster was gunned down last week. Now, he was not shot in Metro Vancouver. This gangster was hit in Phuket, Thailand. Police in Metro Vancouver now worried about retaliation back here in Canada. Meanwhile, let's take a look at what's happened recently in Mexico. Now, I I love Mexico personally. I've done some holidays down there, mostly to Puerto Vallarta. Love the country, love the people, love everything about it. But check out this. You had those, those two Canadians who were shot dead at a Mexican resort that is still under investigation. Have a listen to this report now from Global News reporter Mike LeCouture. Webcam images capture what was nearly a picture-perfect day at the Mexican resort. Five bangs believed to be gunshots ring out. This video appears to show the scene afterwards with three bodies laying on the floor in an eating area. Definitely a shock that it happened in a resort. Canadian travel advisor Lori Gold lives 10 minutes from the resort. And while she was surprised, she doesn't feel less safe. You know, people have to realize that life is still life, even in paradise. But typically it does not affect uh, tourists at all. It is not anywhere near tourism. It is really super targeted. Local police claim the shooting was linked to organized crime. Reports say two men are dead, while one woman is in hospital. All three are believed to be Canadian. The gunman seen in this photo released by the local Secretary of Public Security is still on the loose. All right. When you go to a Mexican resort, you certainly typically feel safe. I know I do. I have in the past. But, man, that was bullets flying there at a resort in Mexico. Let's discuss now with my guest, Douglas Centuries, a very fine investigative reporter. He is the co-author of the book, Hunting El Chapo taking down the world's most wanted drug lord. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Douglas, thanks a lot for coming on today. Mike, thank you for having me. I really appreciate being on. Hey, Douglas, you've done some awesome work on El Chapo, the notorious uh, cartel leader in, the, in uh, Mexico is now behind bars. Let me ask you about, with your knowledge of the, of the criminal scene in Mexico right now, does it surprise you to hear about some Canadians being targeted and gunned down 
at a resort in Mexico? How unusual is that? It's unprecedented that it would happen inside a, a, an elite resort like this. But these are not Canadian tourists. These are yeah. mid-level drug traffickers involved in organized crime, as is the guy in Thailand. And they are... So they're they're in a, a parallel universe. They are they are working in the Mexican underworld. So once you cross over that line, they are playing by the rules of the underworld in Mexico. And they happen to be Canadian nationals. But let's let's talk about what they are. They're really they are convicted criminals or accused criminals, alleged criminals involved in the drug trafficking trade. And they happen to be playing a very dangerous game in a country that's very dangerous at this moment. Yeah, and this was a, a targeted hit that took place at a popular resort in Mexico, popular with Canadian tourists and other tourists from around the world. Unusual, like you said, to have a hit take place in that venue. Because, you know, I had someone tell me once that the cartels in Mexico really have no interest in upsetting the tourism business there. Uh, largely because it's so profitable for them that you know some of the some of the cartels actually have an intra financial interest in the uh, in the resorts. Your thoughts? Well, the cartels didn't. We, you know, we want to talk about these generalized term the cartels, which is yeah. that's a, a mis, that's a misnomer in a sense. But the you know these are organized crime groups. They had nothing to do with this. Basically, uh, a. a Best law enforcement theories that a guy in Canada, we can't name him, ordered the hit. It's, you know, you push a button, like the mafia would say. They pushed a button. They hired a sicario. They, they hired a hitman out of Mexico City to track down some guys that ripped them off. Uh, yeah. Life is cheap in Mexico. In, in the reality, tourists almost never get killed. Yeah. But it's almost total, you know, you had my friend Emmanuel Gallardo, who's a much more uh, in-depth Mexican specialist on this topic. There's almost total impunity for murder in Mexico of Mexican nationals. And these guys basically went to Mexico to traffic or do whatever they were doing. And uh, yeah, somebody put, you know, pushed a button. They had a hitman come track them down. It's the cartel. If you ask my opinion, nobody yeah. in the hierarchy of, you know, major organized crime in, in Mexico would want this to happen. Of course, it screws up the fucking, the, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse up the tourist industry. Uh, they don't want that. So this is just basically an organized crime hit, a dispute being settled in international territory. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's a, like tourism, like a billion-dollar business there in Mexico, so there's a lot of money on the line. My guest is Douglas Century. He's the co-author of the book Hunting El Chapo, Taking Down the World's Most Wanted Drug Lord. We're talking about Canadian crime and its international links. Hey, Douglas, let's talk about that Vancouver gangster who was gunned yep. down in Phuket, Thailand. And this is a fascinating case. Uh, Jimmy Slice Sandu, he mm. part of the UN gang, gunned down yep. in Phuket, Thailand. Let me play this clip here for you from the very fine crime reporter at the Vancouver Sun, Kim Bolin, who broke this story. Here she is speaking this morning with Simi Sarah. Then I'll get your thoughts, Douglas. Have a listen. All of it was caught on tape. These looked like hired hitmen. Uh, they did not look like locals. I heard they were speaking another language, uh, neither English uh, nor Thai. Uh, so, you know, somebody arranged for this murder. And obviously, uh, you know, police in Canada are going to be working closely with police in Thailand because, uh, you know, people involved in the gang conflict here are looking to target, uh, you know, their enemies wherever they are. Vancouver Sun crime reporter Kim Bolin talking to Simi this morning. And this particular guy who was shot in Thailand, Douglas Jimmy Sandu, had been deported yeah. from Canada for serious crime. I guess if you're deported out of the country, it doesn't necessarily mean you're off the hit list. What are your thoughts? No. Yeah, I mean, look, these guys... Uh, I, I, I know the narrative is to call them gangsters. They're kind of the they're kind of the middlemen between the suppliers and getting the stuff off, you know onto the streets of Vancouver and Calgary and wherever wherever. Like I'm in Calgary at this moment. You know, there's a lot of cocaine. There's a lot of drugs being trafficked across Canada. These guys get it there. You rip somebody off. You have a war. Yeah, I think this guy had a home in Dubai, from what I I understand, Ed. But he he happened to just have landed in uh, Thailand and and again somebody pushed a button. Somebody found him. Knew where he was. 
and yes, it's international, so guys can hire hitmen in any country at this point. If you're playing that dangerous game of being a drug trafficker, of playing, and you're safer in Canada, I'm sure, than you would be in international places, right? I mean, the, the murder rate here is much lower than it is in Mexico, so and Thailand. Uh, so I assume we don't know all the facts of what happened to him, but I've seen the no. gory video. He's getting out of his car. It's you know, somebody uh, has an agenda with this guy, and they just they got a local hitman. I'm sure to take him out. When you say when you mention about someone pushes a button in this case, uh, when one button is pushed, do other buttons then get pushed in sequence? Like Vancouver Metro Vancouver Police now worried about retaliation, not in Thailand, but right here in, in Vancouver. Is that that possible? Uh, it's always possible. I yeah. mean, you kill one guy in that world. Uh, generally, if he's got family members, close friends, if if they know who did it. Now, I don't. I mean, we're not up on exactly who may have ordered it, but we have theories, right? Yeah. Uh, sure, there there can be retaliation, and I'm sure they're on high alert. If if the police in Vancouver or the RCMP are doing their jobs, they are looking closely at who might be the enemies and who might be carrying out the retaliation, and I imagine they're under surveillance. That would be the smart move. Yes, of course, there's always re- there, there is always potentially the retaliation when an organized crime figure gets killed, generally by his loved ones. They will retaliate or his buddies. Uh, it's possible, but I'm sure Vancouver is, is a, you know, relatively very, very safe. So it's unlikely <laughs> to be a big shootout. <laughs> All right, welcome back to the show. We're talking about organized crime in Canada and its international links around the world. My guest is Douglas Century, the investigative reporter. He is co-author of the book Hunting El Chapo. Hey, Douglas, just in the few minutes we've got left here, let me ask you about your awesome book here on El Chapo. I've been fascinated by the saga of this guy, one of the most powerful drug dealers in the world when he was head of the Sinaloa cartel in Mexico. Yeah public enemy number one in the United States. And you wrote a, a fascinating book along with Andrew Hogan, right, who was a police officer involved in the case. Can you tell me about the book? Well, Andrew uh, was a, is a now retired uh, special agent with the Drug Enforcement Administration, DEA. He and a great agent from Homeland Security, two U.S. agencies, uh, they were down there coordinating with the Mexican Marines, and they yeah, I mean, this guy was untouchable. He's completely yeah. untouchable, but they tracked him down using BlackBerry uh, surveillance. They did all sorts of stuff. And uh, so it's really the story of how really good law enforcement, it's almost like High Noon, if you remember that movie with uh, Gary Cooper. It's like lawmen who go down and catch the guy that, you know, nobody says is, is, is catchable. Uh, and the inner workings of the cartel, they're not as sexy as, as they make it seem on Narcos Mexico. <laughs> I mean, it's really, it's the guy engaged in almost micromanaging his, his drug traffic, his billion dollar a year drug trafficking to the, to an insane level. He was just so involved in every level and he was a brilliant, although illiterate man, like pretty much illiterate, even in Spanish. But uh, all he did is uh, do that and engage in sex like all the time, like every day, a different girl. So that was his life. And, you know, it wasn't very glamorous, actually. It was just kind of he was living like a rat in a hole for many years because, you know, he was the most wanted man in the world. But good law enforcement can catch anybody. Nobody's untouchable. There was a there was a point there where it seemed like there was no prison could hold the guy because he had been able to escape from prison by digging tunnels and he was notoriously yeah. famous as a digger. A guy could dig tunnels anywhere yeah. to smuggle drugs and also escape out of prison. I remember there was a famous episode where he was able to escape from a Mexican prison uh, through a through a tunnel, but you know it almost seemed like that was an inside job that they let him get away. Oh, yeah. yeah. Altiplano, that's a very famous, yeah. He, I mean, he was known as, uh, within the cartel world, as Inte, or engineer, the engineer, because he hired, literally, he had architects and engineers. He kind of pioneered the narco tunnels that crossed the border. So it was yeah. the same blueprint. They just did the tunnel right up, you know, crazy, like 1.5 kilometers right up into, and, but, you know, everybody in Mexico knows people were paid not to hear the jackhammers, right? I mean, they had to, you know, a lot of people had to be paid off. And that was, if you really want to understand Chapo's power, it was, he knew who to bribe. He knew he was smarter than a lot of guys in terms of paying the right people. And the biggest narcos in Mexico are the politicians. 
I mean, this is something I, it has to be said. It goes all the way to the top. So, in you know, if you are in good, the only reason El Chapo was caught and extradited is that certain people said you're becoming too much of a headache. You know what I mean? You really are becoming a pain. And they allowed him to be extradited. He, if he was in a Mexican prison, he would be still running his cartel. But now he's in Florence Max. He's, he's in a Supermax in Colorado. And he is not getting out of there. He's dying. He's going to die in that prison. But in Mexico, no, yeah, no prison could hold him. He broke out of two prisons, actually. It's fatal. Yeah. But yeah, yeah they would. It was, all, it was all through bribery, really. Right. So bribery. he's now in like a, an ultra super maximum security prison in the United States, as you mentioned, after he was extradited and convicted. And he just lost yeah. his final appeal uh, recently. So, yeah, he's not getting out of out of jail no. this time. He's not tunneling out of there. That's for sure. No, he's where he, he's where he's in Florence Supermax, 23 hour day solitary confinement. He has one hour wow. day of solid, uh, alone. That's where John Gotti died. Uh, it is you are once you're so the thing that mexican traffickers and most international traffickers fear most of all is extradition to the united states yeah because they know as you know i mean back in the days like al capone really had corrupted chicago and he same thing with al capone he could have run the city of chicago completely but once nowadays you know you can't the thing is in mexico if you pay a a a prison guard a hundred thousand dollars u.s he'll do whatever you want in the states it's just you know, you'd have to give a guy 10 million, 20 million to look the other way, you know. And so people, everybody's susceptible to bribery, but it's just, it's not going to happen. He's going to die there. Uh, he's got multiple life sentences and that's the end of his life. And he's not running his cartel. His sons are running around like idiots, you know, shooting off guns, doing stuff that they're not the power anymore. It's hey, moved to Jalisco. Hey Douglas, we just got one. We got one minute left. I mean, the tragedy of Mexico is a country I love so much. You know, is that even though you lock up a guy as notorious as El Chapo in the United States, I mean, the power vacuum does not does not stay a vacuum for long. Someone else moves in. Like in in just the one minute we got left, how would you sum up the current situation in in Mexico right now? Well, there are multiple guys who are powerful. There's a guy named Mencho in in Jalisco. It's the new generation of Jalisco, yeah. but. Here's the problem. There's a lot of cocaine consumption in Canada. There's a lot of cocaine consumption in the United States. As long as people, and we all probably know people who are putting that stuff up their nose uh, here, there's a demand, there's going to be a supply. And yeah. and you can't, it's like whack, it's whack-a-mole. You remember that game, whack-a-mole? You, sure. you knock down one guy. Somebody is going to supply the people up here. Who, a lot of them are really good people. They're just stockbrokers and whoever doing what they have to do they like to play with that stuff as long as there's a supply somebody's gonna bring it up here and it's not it's not the mexican problem it's right. the it's the demand problem to me douglas it's always yeah. awesome to have you on the show thank you for coming on today appreciate it thanks mike